Okay, everyone, we are now to the ninth chapter of Bavink's The Christian Family. On the tenth one, either on the tenth or let's kind of wrap up after it, I'll have my wife comment and, and join in as well, kind of summarize her thoughts on the book as I've read it with her. The ninth chapter is really good. It's really long, um, but I really want to find a way to do this more briefly and I know the answer is stick to what I've highlighted don't ramble on and uh, that's what I'm going to desperately attempt here so chapter 9 is on family and society I'm just gonna give you a lot of bob ink the concept of society the history of the human race did not begin atomistically with a group of isolated individuals but organically with a marriage and a family from the very beginning, all those relationships were embedded in seed form within that family, relationships which would later arise among people in the most splendid manner. And then he goes on. He says, even as one star differs in brightness from another star, even as all physical bodies are not the same, but can be distinguished as a human body or an animal or a fish or a bird, even as in the state of glory there will be a diversity of gifts and strengths and various degrees of blessedness, so too the human race has unfolded on earth according to God's will in an endless diversity of persons and powers, relationships and capacities, talents and gifts, possessions and goods. From that first family have come clans and tribes and nations, and among those nations a rich group associate, association has developed which we generally refer to as society. The word society is related to the French societe and the Latin societas, which itself is based on socius, which means companion. Hence, the word society has come to refer to a group of people living together in an ordered community. A society is formed when individuals who agree, sympathize, and cooperate with each other pursue general or special interests and therefore enjoy trustful concourse with one another. In recent times, people often speak about a society among insects and animals, among bees, for example, ants and beetles. Um, and he goes on and says, there's essential differences between us and the animal, quote unquote, society. So when, when we discuss the notion of society, we may properly take human society as our starting point. Now, a society can arise among people and frequently does by means of agreement and contract and varies from a club, an association, or a company. Um, and he talks about farming, livestock association, trade and industry groups, also literary clubs and charity organizations, arts and sciences, and even society on behalf of a citizenry. The word society points not only to the kind of coalition of people that arises through voluntary association and is established for an agreed upon purpose, the same word is used frequently to refer to the kind of group of people that arises naturally in terms of various life relationships in mutual fellowship, uh, something that is neither artificial nor juridical, but an organic social entity. Um, and he says we might talk about the Greek society, Roman society, French or English society. We might expand even further to include 
the organi organized association of people living on a continent affected by certain historical influences or spread across the entire globe. So we speak of Western society or Eastern civilization or Christian culture, Muslim culture, European or American society, and so on and so forth. He says a, a person becomes a member of society understood in its organic social meaning, not by voluntary agreement, but by nature through birth and life. And a person is merely an individual. A single individual is not a person. Above the entrance to the history of humanity stands written this saying from Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. From conception onward, a human being is a product of, fe of fellowship. Every person is born from and in fellowship. Persons are cared for and nurtured in the context of fellowship and continue in some kind of fellowship throughout life all the way to one's final breath. A human being is a convivial creature and remains so, all the hermits and bachelors notwithstanding. Um, he says this organic society can develop in, in different directions, manifest in, in various forms when it comes or consists of the union of husband and wife and children born to them it is termed a family despite the inescapable difference of scale every family is a society in miniature when it appears in the political arena and identifies its purpose as maintaining protecting and fortifying a nation it is termed a state when it is involved in the preaching and applying of god's word it functions as a church um as such, society is distinguished from family, church, and state. It has its own existence and life, and it spans an entire broad range of human thought and action. Now, I, I do want to pause. That was one section here. Because I was reading um, James Eglinton. Uh, he's coming out with a critical biography of Bob Inc. And he had posted uh, weeks ago kind of in light of, well, some of the feminism versus patriarchy discussions going on, that you might not want to uphold Bob Inc. as a pure uh, defender of the patriarchy because, so says Eglinton, after the First World War, in the three or so years he lived after it ended, um, supposedly Bob Inc. drastically changed his views. Um, Again, Eglinton wrote the introduction to the book we're going through here, The Christian Family, and kind of, I think, undermines things even in that introduction. I don't know this guy from Adam, Eglinton. I don't know Bobby from Adam either. Um, you know, I, 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 I know he's supposed to be an expert. He's supposed to be writing the definitive biography. Um, just my gut and a few questions I've asked, you know, I... I'm thinking I would tend to disagree a little bit. I will say that Eglinton noted on his Facebook post about this that, you know, Bob Inc.'s position was growing and developing even before and during World War One. But after that, he had a complete break with Kuiper and said that with the massive loss of life and other things, um, women are going to have to enter the workforce in mass and women can vote uh, in society in government and he encouraged them to go to the schools which Kuiper was against uh, um, different universities and so on from from what I understand and what I read and Kuiper was opposed to all of that now as some have pointed out um, 
you know, it, it's, I myself am not <laughs> against women getting an education. I myself am not opposed to women going to a university or a college in every circumstance. Um, so, you know, if the argument is, well, Bavink used to say women should never go out and get an education, but then came around to the point where he said in this modern society, it may be a necessity. I think I can say, okay, in this book itself, as we've read through it, and even as we read through this chapter together and discuss it together, you're going to see him again. I think he's writing this. I can't remember now if it was right at the end of World War One or in the middle of it, but it's near 1917 or so. Um, and even here you can see Bobbing's maybe views... Um, in transition or at least he's open to a variety of viewpoints and opinions on this and honestly i would probably come down on that myself um, i'm not really for women getting a seminary education particularly if it's in you know, div i don't think that should be permitted even women are not to be preachers uh, or you know teachers uh, and an div is meant designed ordinarily for you know some master of divinity for men to get to be trained to be ministers i know at greenville they could not get an mdiv at the seminary i do some work for you can't women um i don't believe we would allow them to get an mdiv certainly would not allow them to take the um preaching courses um there there's some of the lectures that uh, are only for uh specifically for ministers and it's not a ton of lectures it might be like five or six or so it's not a lot um but that is only reserved for men and for those preparing for the ministry um you know and, and uh, the silly arguments of oh are you afraid a woman learning this stuff because she might do better than you uh no uh we're protecting the women if you will from uh even really even the temptation to um to go that way. I'm not against a woman having sound ability to uh, study the scriptures and to, um, you know, have some basic exegetical understanding. I, I don't, I don't think there's too many people who would be against that, but getting that and acquiring that and going to seminary and paying a lot of money for that would, when seminary is really for an academic teaching you know, either in the academy or in the church profession. Yeah, I, I am kind of against uh, a woman doing that because that's not the woman's calling, the woman's sphere. You know, a Bible college, which is a bit broader, um, I have much less of an issue going uh, of, a, of a woman being there. When I went to RBC as a single man, I was banking on females being there so I could get married. Um, and I think some men who were pastors sent their daughters to Bible college, probably in part, yes, of course, with the education, but also to get, you know, their MRS degree, right, to, to, to find um, a partner, a, a spouse. And I'm not against that. And some have said, you know, well, a woman counselor is helpful, so having her get a counseling degree, you know, there's a place for that. Um, I've got mixed feelings about that. I can see the argument there. But again, I don't think a woman who's teaching role in arena is primarily, as scripture says, 
to be homemakers, to work in the home, older women teaching younger women this, um, I don't think that takes a, a, it's not primarily a theological um, enterprise. It is theological because everything is, of course, right? But home economics, uh, you know, is not dependent upon the super finer, refined, deep doctrines of scripture. That's not an insult, it's just a reality. Um, that's true of every other profession apart that is outside of you know teaching scripture in one form or another. If you are a businessman, you don't have to go and get a seminary degree to practice business. Uh, a, a, a medical doctor, uh, a sports player, a farmer, same thing, same type of thing, right? Um, don't hear what I'm not saying. Men and women in all professions should know the Bible well and should, as they're able to read theology books, but some are going to have um, a greater freedom and calling to delve into certain theological things than others. And in general, men are going to be more um, available, have more time, energy, and probably even inclination in some ways to, to really dig into those type of things. And when you get to the seminary level, um, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have hardly any, if any, women um, involved with that. Even if they're a single woman, they're not married, even if they don't plan on being married. Um, my, my question would be what, you know, why would we have so many women in our seminaries? Do we really want that many single women? Well, no, most of them aren't single or don't intend on being single. You know, well, what if they're going to get married in their later 20s? Well, they're missing out on some of their childbearing years. And again, um, why the need to go and uh, get this kind of education, seminary education? Um, you can learn a lot from your own local church. You should be able to. If you can't, that tells you there's a problem in, in our whole structure of uh, how we operate and do things in the church today. Um yeah, so I know there's online studies now. If you can find online, more affordable studies um, that are self-paced, kind of like the seminary I work for uh, and do work for and have, have studied at, um, you know, I, I could see uh, a woman auditing these courses. They're self-paced. They're kind of as you're able. Um, you know, we have a college level program as well, If and we have a, a degree in elementary education. And that, that is the degree, honestly. Uh, it, it's in education and it's for teachers teaching, especially the lower grades, and many who have taken it are women, um, but that's women teaching children. Um, you know, that's understandable. There's theology in there. They go through uh, Bob Inc. They go through the Old and New Testament. Um, but that's geared towards something that is reasonable and suitable uh, for women to be involved with, with, with teaching children. So if you want to say, okay, well, what about women teaching, counseling other women and getting a counseling degree? Again, I, I, I wouldn't dismiss that altogether. Um, but even the teaching degree that, that we offer is, you know, 90% of the courses aren't directly on, you know, theology. And I think a man, 
needs to be able to counsel women as well. Sometimes there are certain sensitive issues that getting a female's perspective would be beneficial and helpful. But you know, again, there the biblical pattern is older women teaching younger women, primarily, of course. And a lot of these women getting counseling degrees are not they're not older women, and you know they're um, probably in their twenties or thirties. Um, and again, what are they teaching? How to be homemakers? How to raise your children? Well, when you're twenty or thirty, you're just starting up a family, and so you know, again, it's just the market for twenty and thirty-something-year-old women in seminary for counseling degrees. From my perspective, at this point in my life, would be small. But when I hear and see, you know, some of our most known reformed seminaries are, I mean, I've heard in some cases are as many women as men, or maybe even more in some cases when you include online students. I, I, I would need, you know, to look up and verify those numbers, but, uh, you know, a tremendous amount. Um, it's not really a seminary anymore. It changes the dynamic, and it certainly can open up the door to softening on doctrine because, you know, if you do... Women aren't stupid, and I don't think most of us are arguing this. So women training um, in that sort of environment can become very smart, smarter than most untrained, un, you know, non-seminary trained men. And, you know, I can hear an Amy Bird or somebody saying, well, what's wrong with that? You can't learn from a woman. But that's still missing the whole point. I could go and, you know... Uh, <laughs> learn from my mother and my wife a bunch about home economics and put a skirt on and maybe not be as pretty but could probably clean the dishes and and do things pretty well and be better than a lot of younger women who are just starting to do these type of things or haven't done those type of things before but does, does that mean that i ought to do that no um not as the uh, primary calling again sure sometimes as a man, you're going to change a diaper, and it's not a sin, and you ought to do it. And if you can't do it because it's beneath you, then you've got a wrong view of men and women uh, and masculinity and femininity. Um, but at the same, by the same token, if you can't recognize that God has given men a certain sphere and women a certain sphere, and though there is an overlap and sometime in a pinch you help each other out in your primary domain, you still have a primary domain. And, uh, and it's built into your very uh, being your body and your soul. And I think Vavink has brought that out pretty clearly, you know, regardless of however much he supposedly changed late in life or didn't change it late in life. Someone asked Eglinton, well, did Vavink become an egalitarian? And um, he sort of kind of said as an anachronistic or sort of a something you can't easily answer. And, you know, it's, it's all a really good tease for his book. Um, at this point, I don't plan on getting it. I, I just would rather hear people who read it and really love Bob Inc. You know, tell me what Edwinson thinks so I don't have to drop all that money um, on something I'm not overly interested in uh, and just kind of concerned about, you know, how some of this might be presented. Uh, but maybe I will get the book. Maybe I'll become more interested. I don't know. But just wanted you to know that in the context of what we're reading through here. I, I need to find... I don't have this pulled up in front of me, but Eglinton on his Facebook page, you know, um, talked about uh, Bavink's view of society. And it wasn't just a, you know, society is a family writ large that he kind of modified on that, I believe, is some of the stuff that he was also talking about. But even what we just read, you can see Bavink is already in this book itself, not just later, but in the book itself, kind of saying, yeah, there's different ways you can classify and understand what a society is 
is. And by and large, I do not disagree with what Bobbink is saying in here. Let's continue. Um, the boundaries of society with respect to family, church, and state. And he says right here, very different sentiments exist with regard to circumscribing this society. Right, circling it, pointing it out, saying this is it. Some would exclude the family since the family forms the foundation of society and is not simply one element of society. Others view society simply as the development and expanding of family life. Um, it goes on and says, there are those who see religion and, and the church as nothing more than a fruit of human culture, while others would maintain the independence of religion and the church, seeing them as belonging to the foundation of society rather than to the components of society. Finally, whereas some restrict society to the acquisition and distribution of material goods, others expand society to include production and distribution of spiritual goods as well. Economists usually understand society to refer only to the aggregate of household relationships and components among a nation, whereas sociologists usually understand society as broadly as possible, seeking to annex all human relationships and phenomena. All these important scientific questions need not be discussed here, much less resolved. We may suffice here with a twofold comment. The first is this, that out of regard for its own interest, every science must restrict itself to that which comprises its domain. So you got some sort of domain, sphere, sovereignty sort of thing here. Economics is thus fully within its right to investigate only the household relationships and efforts of human society. To the same degree, sociology loses its scientific character when it seeks to draw everything within its purview, when it pronounces about everything, and when it loses its focus through philosophical generalities. In the second place, one should keep in mind that society is not limited to acquiring and distributing material goods, even though people make this a unique object of investigation. Because a person consists of body and soul and simultaneously com comprises a spiritual and sensory being, society also always possesses a number of ideal spiritual goods that are closely related to material culture, but that nevertheless ha have an independent value. Subduing the earth in the broadest sense is the content and goal of culture, but the subduing is possible only through human knowledge and ability, and these proceed in the proper direction only when they are guided by religious and moral principles, Dominion over the earth is an unfolding of the image of God in humanity. Therefore, therefore, society must be understood in the broader sense of the word as referring to the entire form of human association willed by God, grounded in nature, and coming to gradual development in history. So society develops, it grows. There is elastic built into it. And I think that's worthwhile to think about that Early on, is he going to talk? Is he going to talk about uh, with the patriarchy, as in the patriarchy, like in you know Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and and Moses, and so on, where every household of itself basically provided its own means. It made its own food and clothing and shelter, and by and large, did did everything for itself, where it was literally dependent upon no one and nothing else. Um, just because that's the way they did it then doesn't mean that we have to do it that way today or do it that way now. Um, and for those patriarchalists who, you know, excuse me, perhaps would disagree and uh, say, well, really, we need to get back to that where every man is under his own 
you know, tree and has his own vineyard and basically is self-sufficient. I, I, I kind of laugh at that. Um, I don't know how many actually would go that far, but for the few that may, I, I, I laugh at that because I've yet to meet the person who's, you know, not buying stuff on Amazon. You know, even if they do their own hunting and fishing, they're still buying, you know, not all of them, they're not building their own guns. They're not, you know, getting their own materials, even though they are building their own guns and so on and so forth. Um, so develop beyond any kind of rudimentary, basic sort of standard of living, uh, there's going to have to be specialization to one degree or another. What I have really been awakened to is the hyper-specialization that we have had probably, yeah, in the last 50 plus years um, and how it has made us inept in anything other than our area of expertise. Um, I have not driven a stick shift. I'm 30 years old and I was trained in driver's ed on an automatic and never really had the chance or took the, took the um, opportunity to drive a stick shift. Um, that's just a, one example of not long ago, everybody like, well, you know, how can you not drive a stick shift? That's what there is, is how you drive a car, right? Well, things have changed. Um, for others, it may be, I don't know, they've, They've never, I mean, I, I've changed the oil with my dad once or twice on a car. Um, I've changed a few tires when we've had flats. Um, you know, and you, I think it's good to know these basic abilities and skills, particularly as men. Um, but if you get to a place and a time, go back far enough when cars were built more simply and you could do more of your own mechanics and, and repairs on it, um, Back then, 30 plus years ago, I think that kind of thing was more common, one, because people valued that more, and also because cars with their advanced sort of like, you know, everything's a computer now, technology, it's, they're, they're, they're just, you know, made in such a way that it's more difficult to do your own, uh, you know, mechanics and repairs and, and, and work on it. And it's not taught as much, et cetera, so on and so forth. So I feel the weight of my own um, narrowly trained, narrow ability. I have a Bible college degree. I have an MDiv now as well. And they're both circling around Bible and theology. Um, if I'm not teaching in a school, a Christian school probably, um, or preaching, pastoring a church, or maybe some sort of counseling thing, I'm probably back to flipping burgers or, yeah, starting at the bottom rung of something. Um, now, I think to some extent that's, that's, you know, been true among down through the ages, but, um, you know, when, when you do have more ability to do multiple things, if you can uh, flip houses, if you can uh, teach piano on the side if you can you know coach a baseball team or something I might be able to coach a high school baseball team or something like that but you know you need to have other options other avenues it, it, it's certainly a good thing to have or it can make it where you know you're not so confident in just saying what you believe and standing your ground because if you lose your job landing that other, another job quickly might not be so easy um, 
So, and that's just from a job standpoint, from just a sheer competency standpoint and confidence standpoint of being able to do certain things. It's good to have um, broader competencies, I guess, if you want to word it like that. And, um, you know, Bavink here goes on and, you know, says societies uh, come gradually, develop gradually in history, which comes to manifestation in the combination and cooperation of the gifts and powers granted to humanity, and which has as its goal the preservation and generation, the dis distribution and enjoyment of various spiritual and material goods. And I think we also have to recognize that um, men need the competency and abilities of other men, sometimes to learn some of those skills, but also because they don't know those skills, aren't as naturally inclined at them, and need the help of other men too. And so my one push, uh, you know, I wanna push in two directions, I guess. I wanna push against those who think you can just be an egghead as a man and read, read your books and your theology all day and know, hardly know how to tie your shoes <laughs> and think that's real biblical manhood and really godly. And just because you're a teacher and a pastor doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to know how to do other things too. You should. And that's a, a word to myself as much as it is to anybody else. But then on the other side, um, I saw one minister who I appreciate much of what he says, but, you know, he's talking about, he listed like over a hundred things that uh, every man should teach his sons to do or something like that. Some of them were great. I mean, none of them were bad, but to turn it into a list, a pharisaical list of things that you, you know, they must know, they must do, or you must be able to teach them. I'm like, man, I would like to be able to do, you know, more than just the 20 or 25 of the things you have listed on here myself. Um, and Doug Wilson had a good um, quote, I guess you'd say, in Father Hunger, his, one of his books. You know, he says, men don't have to bear every um, identity marker that is in the culture as a man, right? There's a, there's a swath of identity markers that, you know, de delineate men from women. You know, you don't have to have, be 10 for 10. He says six or seven will do. Or, you know, something like that. Seven out of 10 or six out of 10 will do. Why? Because that makes you 60 or 70% of a man? No, that's not true. And Doug Wilson understands that that's not true. Some of these patriarchal types, I do wonder sometimes, if they think, well, the more you can do all this, the more of a real godly man that you actually are. And it's, it doesn't quite work like that. But it is to say, if you bear only like two or three of these identifying traits, and some of the feminine traits you bear even more of, then you're effeminate. Uh, <laughs> right? So, you know, you, you have to hold all these things into a certain degree of balance. But God has created... Uh, dependency in the family itself. The man needs the woman. It was not good for him to be alone. The woman needs the man. And then he didn't just make one man and one woman, but said, be fruitful and multiply. So the men need other men. And you have, well, you got Bezalel and Aholiab, you know, their skill in making and building things in the temple. You got Hiram of Tyre helping with Solomon's temple, skilled, filled with the spirit, right? They hired someone else out to do this because there was nobody like this person who was able to make it. Um, you got Tubal-Cain and Jubal-Cain really early on, the first one to work in a certain area. So there's specialty going back to the beginning of Genesis. So I think it's just a myth to act like there isn't any sort of specializing ever until recent. Um, but the hyper-specialization is recent. Uh, you know, maybe it was in different eras throughout history. I don't know my history well enough to say on that. But in the last 100 years, this hyper-specialization, the last 50 years especially, has emerged. And so you get 
the screeds against millennials that, you know, they can't do anything and they live their own bubbles. And, and some of that sadly is true. Now, some of that, the failing of their parents, I think that's true too, but we have to own it. I have to own it. We all have to own it that, you know, we need to broaden our skill sets. And just because, you know, so much can be given to us out of luxury in our nation now doesn't mean that it's good that it is if it means we lose the ability to do things for ourselves or even the interest and appreciation of these other skills because then you can't appreciate other people anymore you can't love your neighbor as yourself as you ought to and the body of christ can't benefit from each other's gifts anymore and society can't benefit from the varying gifts as much anymore because there's a um, it's faceless, it's all online, Amazon packages are just dropped off at your door, and there's a loss in, of connection with humanity and an appreciation for the work that's being done, and so on and so forth. I still use Amazon. It's not saying don't use Amazon. I love Amazon, but it is saying there's a trade-off. <laughs> all right, I got to go because I was doing good initially, but now I've been talking for a long time. All right. Let's see. Only gradually has the perspective developed in which the social life of humanity was not restricted to family, state, and church. Alongside and among these institutions, an immeasurably rich arena of human living and human effort has come to be introduced during the course of history, which has come to require increasing attention. Um, he goes on. He says... Something else of significance must be mentioned. The, the development of the human race has not been normal. Had sin not entered the world, human society would probably have developed patriarchally and would have expanded as one large association of families. Right? So already he's saying that isn't what happened. So it's not like these are new thoughts after World War I or something for him. If, however, after the entrance of sin, the human race was to survive... The institution of the church and the state was necessary. The church was instituted in principle when the promise was given concerning the seed of the woman, he who would contend against the seed of the serpent and destroy his head. This church lived on in the families of the patriarchs, assumed a national, national form among Israel, and on Pentecost came to exist independently of both state and society. Um, let's see, he also says... I'll skip down a little bit here. Family, state, and church each share this feature that each is independent of the other. Each has its own origin and purpose, and none came forth from the other. Um, and I think that's yeah, worth thinking about. Is that is that accurate? Is that true? I'm not so sure. Um, you know, um, family... Again, if you look at Adam and Eve in the garden and they have children and God gives them commands and laws, you sort of have fa family, state, and church all bundled up and intertwined there. But certainly, as um, specialization and sophistication occurs over time and develops with the disruption of sin, which I think is in part Bavink's point that you know, there's not just this straight patriarchal line due to the disruption of sin. Um, government comes in by, you know, the social contract, you know, different forms 
uh, and in different ways. And because of sin, because of sin, that is, um, I don't know if you want to call it a necessary evil, kind of like God permitting divorce, which Bob Inc. will talk about a bit. Um, but I think that seems to be maybe in part Bob Inc.'s position and something that you have to take into consideration. Um, in a world where there is sin and, and it breaks up the situation, so to speak, working towards what God desires is, of course, good, but there is built-in um, allowances, uh, such as God permitting divorce under certain circumstances, which is actually a good, as someone was quoting Calvin, I think, for uh, the woman and the protection of the woman, uh, having a straight line of you know, patriarchy writ large in this sort of sense as if there was no sin that messes things up may just be a pipe dream, this side of, of glory. It doesn't mean that father rule, that God's headship and lordship should not come to bear on everything in every avenue. It absolutely should. Uh, but the way that it will has to account for the, the, the reality uh, of sin and wickedness and that the United States, there's no nation today that is a theocratic, you know, church state. Um, the true nation of God is all who trust in him scattered from among every tribe and tongue and nation. And we do want to implement the word of God following his rule and his word in this nation, applying the word of God because what's good for God's people is good for all people. Otherwise, the gospel wouldn't be good for anybody, right? Um, but we have to do that realizing that many people are not Christians and that we're not the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Okay. Um, so Bobbing does go on and say, they differ, however, in the fact that the family is the oldest institution and came into existence immediately with the creation of the first human couple. The state and the church, however, were instituted after the fall, so says Bobby, and in such a way that the church owes it, its existence to special grace, while the state owes its existence to common grace. All right, so that's interesting, I think, to, to think about that, you know, he's in the family would be patriarchy writ, writ large, and so you wouldn't have a separated state and church as such, as we know it today at least, but with sin, the state as it is today and the church as it is today um, comes into being uh, in its present paradigm, paradigm and form. And he says the church is due to special grace, the state due to common grace. Uh, I'm not saying I agree with that, I'm just reporting what Bothnick is saying. Society corresponds most closely to the family. Even apart from sin, society would have developed from the family. Okay, so there's a, uh, I don't think he's contradicting himself, but he is recognizing the connection between family and society. And that that is a connection, obviously, that still uh, persists and continues even with sin, right? Because politicians, government officials, the state is an individual who has a family, who's part of the society, the, the state or the city or the county that he lives in, and so on and so forth. 
um, society would have developed with, uh, from the family and the relationships within which society is manifested are expansions and indications of the fundamental forms found in the family. Authority and obedience, independence and subordination, equality and inequality, correspondence and variation, unity, unity of nature and diversity of gifts and callings, all these have been present in the family from the very beginning and in no sense came into existence as a result of sin. Um, He says a, a society exists for the first time when among different people there develop not merely family relationships but also economic household relationships uh, when the various gifts and powers bestowed upon people connect them together and bring their products into circulation. Such an association, cooperation, exchange came into existence very gradually, however. And I guess that whole, uh, what is it, Tubalcane and Jubalcane working in their specific trades and skills and then that... Um, they taking their skills, trading, bartering, making things, working together with other families as we, with the reality in this fallen world, spread out, fill the earth and subdue it, but not as one happy, harmonious family from the point of Adam and Eve all the way out, like one giant spider web with sin and disjointment and murder, right? Right away with Cain killing Abel and Cain being driven out, and it's from his line that you get Tubal Cain and Jubal Cain and so on. Um, that's the kind of stuff that Bavink seems to be pressing on here. And uh, anyway, let's continue. For the oldest form in which people lived together was the patriarchal family. Such a family consisted not only of parents and children, but also of grandparents and grandchildren and, and anyone else belonging to a family. And then additionally, also the servants and maids. It possessed a very large degree of independence for the patriarchal family brought everything forth that it needed for its survival and continuation. That's what I was mentioning earlier, where Bavink touches on this. With its, own, with its own means and through its own powers, it acquired food and drink, blankets and clothing, dwelling and furnishings, weapons and tools. There were not yet any independent careers and professions, no carpenters and bricklayers, no bakers and clothiers. Each family had to care for itself and was thereby in large measure independent of others. And I'm saying getting individual careers i think almost everybody would agree is is perfectly legitimate and fine the problem is when women are pursuing careers that belong and pertain more directly to the man or the man to the woman and that's where yeah in this fallen world exactly what that looks like where you draw the line can become a bit more cloudy but in our nation we're so far beyond that line we've so muddled it together that if you do have eyes to see because you've been born again you can look at a whole bunch of mess and say that's mess and women shouldn't be doing this and men shouldn't be doing this. And so let's look at the, the big issues and, and point those out and we can split hairs later over um, exactly where that line should be drawn. And uh, I think we're, we're, you know at this point we're much better served approaching it like, like that. Changes in society resulting from the need for camaraderie and from work. He talks about that some. Um, he says that men especially need camaraderie uh, with other men. He says the wife by nature is attached to the home. Um, I think Eglinton picks up on some of this as well with um, Bavink, and he does seemingly disparagingly say that Bavink did, you know, have a romanticized view of the genders of the sexes. 
um, which to me indicates he's saying, well, what Bobbink believed was just old, you know, stuff that we know better now about. Um, and of course, there I would, what it sounds like at least, based on this guy's Facebook post, uh, I would disagree with. Um, I do think God has made man, as we've been talking about, and as Bobbing has been talking about, wired a certain way, generally speaking. Well, always, but how strongly varies uh, in women another way. And we should work with and not against nature, right? The way that God has made things, the way that God has created things. Um, and so, you know, to just say there's this romanticized notion that women are more emotional and men are more cerebral or, you know, logically, you know, precise. You know, what, what a bunch of hogwash. Yeah, Bob, I can believe that mess. But, you know, we know now that that was just a romanticized view of things. Um, says who? Uh, you know, prove it. Just because most people today don't believe that doesn't mean all of a sudden that the truth has changed. Um, the truth is in God's word and it's unchanging. And it is clear that God has made men and women differently. And you can deny it all you want, but... Um, Women in general are more emotionally driven and men are more um, uh, cerebral is the word that comes to my mind, more logically deductive and, um, you know, in the aggregate in general that is borne out in every ethnicity. Um, if you want to say that's because of nurture, not nature, uh, be my guest. Um, but I think it's pretty clear when you have young children, young boys and young girls, they behave differently. And it's pretty clear that it's built into nature, even if nurture has something to do with it as well. The question is, what do you do? Do you obliterate that nature with bad nurture? Which I guess I tip my hand. Yeah, bad nurture obliterates what's natural. God's ordained way in nature, in creation. Do you cut against that grain, God's grain, or do you go with it? Do you nurture it or do you destroy it? And remember at the beginning, Bobbing's whole thing is grace restores nature. And today we have God's grace destroying nature, quite literally, right? Amy Bird says man looks at woman, looks at Adam, looks at Eve and sees his telos. So grace gets you to the telos. It doesn't get you back to nature. It doesn't get you back to Eden. It destroys that. It, it, it turns that on its head, right? So that's, they, that's how topsy-turvy things are now. Anyway, back to Bob Inc. He says, but with the husband, life is arranged entirely differently. He makes friends entirely differently than the wife. He never finds full satisfaction at home, but goes out looking for other things that attract his interest. He seeks fellowship with others who are close to him in age and disposition. Together they form a club or an association in order to join at set times in play or amusement, hunting or fishing, pursuing political or social interests. Um, talks about the wife being the most powerful protector with whom the sense of family is far more strongly developed than with the husband. Um, he says the man who is always home who has, who has no social or political interest and is not a member of any outside group, easily becomes a d domestic or a busybody in the kitchen. And the man who returns to his friends a few weeks after his wedding and regularly attends club and group meetings 
runs the serious risk later of entirely neglecting his wife and children. But no matter how severely both kinds of organizational relationships can come into conflict with each other, they are both indispensable. They rest upon the different nature of man and woman, and each contributes to the enrichment of life and to the development of the community. And I don't think that um, Bavink ever uh, recanted you know, this view that there's a different nature of man and woman. Eglinton didn't even seem to go that far. Um, so anyway, let's see what else here. There's about the dominion mandate again. With sin, work is more difficult. Um, but work is rooted in human beings. Made in God's image. Um, what, uh, he says, work does not make a person a rational, moral, and religious being, but presupposes that one is such a being. In work, a person's humanity comes to light. Therefore, all work displays a spiritual and a material side. The human being consists of soul and body, both in one person, and shows this in all his work. Certainly it is the case that in one kind of work, the spiritual side comes to the fore, while in another kind of work, the physical side predominates. But even in the most spiritual work, a person exerts the body more or less. The philosopher thinks, but only with his brains. The day laborer works with his hands, but also needs his soul, his mental acumen. For that reason, it is regrettable that the word work has obtained such a one-sided meaning and usually refers only to working with one's hands. Scripture puts it differently, speaking in connection with the servant of the Lord of uh, the labor of his soul, Isaiah 53:11, talking of working in wisdom, knowledge, and skill, Ecclesiastes 2:21, and often identifying the activity of the apostles with the term work. There is no single distinct class of workers, but all people are workers, created in God's image, ordained for his service. All work bears not to bear a human that is a rational and a moral character. So yeah, those who have more white-collar jobs, cerebral, mental work, it's still real work, and it can cultivate real skill or wisdom. But there's also the quote-unquote skilled laborers who, yeah, work with their hands, but that's also a wisdom as well. Uh, both are wisdom. Scripture refers to both all the above as wisdom and work and skill. Uh, Bezalel and Aholiab are filled with the Holy, Holy Spirit of all wisdom and skill to design uh, the temple. So we, 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 you know, we, we make these distinctions in such, a, such an absolute way, and it doesn't actually comport with what Scripture says. But anyhow... He says, Bavink says, when religion and morality deteriorate among a nation, they drag down with them the best and most refined culture. Intellectual development, material prosperity, wealth, and luxury are in themselves excellent things, but when they are severed from the root of religion, they serve to advance evil far more than they arrest and restrain it. No enduring civilization exists without a healthy religious and moral life. Those who forsake God need to fear pain upon pain, but those who trust in him and him alone will be surrounded by his kindnesses. That's also a very good word for today given our state and our nation. When you have an immoral people, even the best government cannot restrain a deranged, insane mob. Um, 
that's where the ministers and the preachers and the church of God have to actually be salt and light rather than kneeling and bowing to the mob. It is also interesting, um, just kind of ironic, and, and the, um, the blindness uh, of the political left and the theological left and every wicked person on the left that the sign used to show solidarity with the black community is taking a knee right now when that's exactly what happened when George Floyd was killed. Someone took a knee on the guy's neck. Um, can you imagine if the other side proposed this? That would have been probably called out immediately as some subliminal um, desire to see more black people be choked out. You can think I'm crazy, but I, that would not surprise me in the slightest. That's the point. When you have a, a mob that is this mad, insane, crazy, I pray for strong government to curtail this, but unless these people are transformed by the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation, um, or at least God grants some in his common grace light that is thrown from the church onto the people to restrain their wickedness, even if they're not converted, um, the best government is, is going to be toppled and... and the mob is going to get their leaders in place. Anyway, Bavink talks about the power of labor and material of labor. Um, he says there is a difference of work strength between man and woman, parents and children. There is a distinction among gifts of the soul and capacities of the body. One receives four, another five, a third, only one talent. But each person has received a gift. And in general, a person is the sum total of manpower. He can work with his soul and with his body, with his observation and perception, memory, imagination, intellect, and reason, head and hand, arm and foot, shoulders and back. Specifically, in this connection, the soul functions primarily through the intellect, while the body functions primarily through the hand. Of course, divorced from one another, they're both dead. <laughs> um, so they do interact and interface and need each other. Um, with the hand, one handles and is handy. The hand is the organ of human dominion. Um, through the intellect, he acquires knowledge, insight, and wisdom. Through the hand, he employs tools. Through the intellect, he enlists science and service to his labor. Through the hand, he enlists te technological tools and service to his labor. And in the widest sense, art is born. Man is a thinking being and skilled in using tools, the one not separated from the other, but both joined together. Science and technology are related, going back to the earliest origins of the human race, and they develop in fellowship with one another. Um, we're not the first era of science and technology, says Bavink in the 19-teens here, 1920 or so. Um, when we study the earliest history of humanity, we encounter in Babylon and Egypt and China and India, not a wild horde of people, but highly civilized, uh, civilized nations with a wealth of science and an immense technological aptitude. Um, the ex extraordinary glorification of our present century rests in large part on ignorance about earlier times. And that, I think that's definitely true. I mean, look at the Great Wall of China, the, the, the pyramids. Uh, there's so many things that we still marvel at. How did they do it? Um, and, you know, the truth is people have been pretty smart and skilled and advanced in every era or generation or epoch, however you want to put it. Um, he talks a little bit about how 
tools that we make are extensions of our bodies. The hand for the hand, um, the hammer simulates the forearm. The cup simulates the hollow of the hand. The pencil, the finger. So it's filling the earthness of doing it by making tools that help extend our own capacity of our physical bodies. The musical instrument known as the organ corresponds to our lungs. The pump resembles our heart. Uh, telegraph cables are the nerves of humanity. Right, man as he creates creates in light of his own physical structure to dominate and rule over the earth because that's what God has made us for. That's the only way we can think because our minds work of our bodies and our bodies work in light of our minds. And so we fill in the earth and subdue it in that for, format, in that shape. Um, he goes on and says, similarly, people need nature in order to produce their tools. And human ingenuity is surprising when it comes to making natural forces serviceable to their desires. The mineral, mineral kingdom yields coal, peat, and metals. The plant kingdom supplies them with vegetables and various kinds of wood. The animal kingdom offers them sheep and cattle, the animals of the field, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea. Uh, sunlight, fresh air, he talks about a bunch of other stuff. And he says, for under his hands, all of nature is an object of his, of his work capacity, man's work capacity. He uses even the seemingly useless and worthless for his purpose. He uses waste products to fertilize the land and recycles newsprint into writing paper. I'm coming up near the end of my time here on the first one. So I think I'll pause there and hopefully wrap up the second part more quickly. Next part will be complaints against society and against its inequality. You'll want to stick around for that because boy, do we have complaints about inequality running rampant in our nation right now. So I'll be right back. Okay, so we're back now for the second part of this uh, commentary on Pavink Chapter 9, The Christian Family. We're not far from being done here, so that's I've actually achieved a goal of finishing these long chapters in less than two hours. I think. I'm not there yet, but we'll see. All right, complaints against society and against its inequality. Um, Bavink talks about with modern advancements, we have a surplus of wealth, at least, you know, among many more people than before. Um, it says, even the many faceted and infinitely varied relationships among people that arise as a result of labor through agriculture, animal husbandry, business, manufacturing, science, art, etc., are goods whose value cannot be calculated in monetary terms. To put it simply, along with and build upon the foundation of the family, society itself as a grand totality and inestimable good is a priceless gift from the creator and sustainer of all things. Currently, however, society is only seldom understood in this way. On the contrary, it is under attack from all sides and viewed as the cause of every misery and malady, right? Society is to blame. It's society's fault that I don't have this or that or I'm unhappy or whatever. If that was true then, it's probably even more true now. Um, he says that there, are, that there are abuses in society is not surprising. It would be astonishing if it were otherwise. I saw the most amazing thing, by the way, on uh, the racial tensions in our nation right now by a black pastor named Mark Robinson. Um, and I was just asking my wife if she'd seen that or not. I guess not. Um, I shared it on Facebook, but clearly she doesn't read everything I write because I'm not important enough. Um, 
but I mean, I, I would just say read it, go find it and read it. But basically, he's saying there's only so much um, that you can do about evil in this world because evil outnumbers the good that you can do just from a quantitative standpoint, basically. Um, if you put all of your effort into trying to end racism, you still would not end racism. And if you put all your money and resources into doing that, other evils would just blow up and grow and spread. And so basically, he kind of compares it to God permitting divorce in this fallen world. He's almost saying, look, you, you have to basically regulate racism. You have to basically recognize that there's going to be racists. Whatever external means that you have can't change the heart. So it's another, I think, good call to just suck it up. Suck it up and deal with it. This is life. And all of us are part of the problem because we're all sinners, right? So if you work on yourself and better yourself first and foremost, then you are in a position on the high ground to help others and if the others some of them are just flat out enemies then to expose them um now the way he put it and said it was way better and lengthy but it was really a good point a really good point anyway um And Bavik nails, nails this very thing from 100 years ago right here, honestly. He says, when one investigates carefully, it will become apparent that the intense struggle against society actually does not focus, at least not exclusively, on the abuses arising in society, but against the foundations on which society rests. Those abuses provide the occasion, but not the deepest cause of the struggle, even if those abuses could be eliminated through the individual initiative or through the legislation of the state, these would not lead to the return of contentment and peace. Did you catch that? Even if those abuses could be eliminated through individual initiative or through the legislation of the state, these would not lead to the return of contentment and peace. And so he talks about universal suffrage, government pensions, insurance laws, social legislation, model factories, and whatever else one may cite, None of them would eliminate the resistance being mounted against society itself in terms of its present foundations. The deepest complaint against which conflict is being targeted is, targeted is inequality, which exists everywhere. Political revolution, so, so people say, has made people equal before the state. If that is not to remain an, in, an incomplete effort, it must be finished in terms of social revolution, which will make people socially equal. Inequality must be stopped. Inequality in status and inequality in property ownership. No more masters and servants, wives and maids, employers and employees, governments and subjects. Sounds like today, doesn't it? For authority is presumptive despotism. Obedience is slavery. Submission is bondage. And service is groveling. Every organic moral relationship that has existed so far must for the future be transformed into a contractual relationship. All service must become a position with a function. And from what I'm reading from Eglinton, if you believe him, shortly after Bavik wrote this, he bought into all this and said, yeah, that's true. That's what it has to be. It's the new era, the new world. We got to face it bravely. And it's just how it is. Um, I'm not an expert, so I don't know. Whatever. Um, 
In the future, people must no longer be able to be rich through a benefactor, through birth, or through inheritance, but rather wealth must be distributed, dis distributed strictly according to rights, every wage according to desert, or perhaps distribution according to need. This latter point has not yet been resolved. To clarify, I'm not sure if Eglinton would say that he became a full-on socialist or anything like that, but this sort of contractual basis to government and everything else was something that Bavink just kind of reluctantly perhaps said, yeah, this is where it's going and um, society changes and so be it. Now, again, I do think there's some elasticity into the way things are going to be and that, and that some of that's okay, but there is a breaking point. You know, elastic can snap <laughs> and we, we have snapped as a nation uh, for sure. And uh, we have to find a way back or find a better way forward. Any complaint, uh, Bavink, um, I guess you could say complains, or he says there, there are those who just oversimplify things. They divide society actually into only two classes, the filthy rich and the dirt poor, the super powerful and the powerless, the abusers and the abused, tyrants and slaves. But the real society, the, the society that lives and breathes, does not look at, at all like that, says Bavink. The diversity is far greater, so, that, so great that no one can form a complete picture of it. The filthy rich constitute a very small minority, and of these people, membership along, uh, along a continuum proceeds down to the bottom, not by a big leap, but rather in terms of a gradual slope in various degrees and in various stages. Within society, there is not only an aristocratic class, but an academic class, a merchant class, a manufacturing class, middle class, retail class, skilled laboring class, and a laboring class. And in, even in those, there's endless movement. There are large average and small merchants and retailers. The number is by no means small of business owners who carry a far heavier load than many an employee and laborer. <clears throat> um, he says, the misery of society is not that classes exist according to the vocations and enterprises that are practiced but that the classes are forcibly turned upside down and that people are, who are torn from these social connections are then, contrary to all reality, divided into two classes in terms of which only outward property, apart from all enterprise, serves as a measure. And I think that's a pretty profound point. It's like the haves and the have-nots. It's all about how much stuff do you have. Um, but that's not really a good measure. It's not the only measure, that's for sure. Um, he says people work at you know unequal rates and so um, society does become unequal and I talked about this in the Candace Owens thing I recorded you're never going to have a perfectly equal society it's not meant to be that way it's impossible to be that way people aren't <laughs> how you like this people aren't equal they're not you can take any two different people, two people, and, and they're different. They have inequalities, strengths and weaknesses. Everybody understands this, but when you bring it up to some emotional big issue, uh, people lose their minds. And he says, just as the body is one, it has many members, and all the members of this one body, being many are one body, even so has the Church of Christ been formed, according to the Apostle Paul. I mean, that's how serious this is. This is why socialism, Marxism, all this stuff is anti-Christian, anti-gospel, because it is anti-church in the way that God has structured it with different parts 
with differing gifts among the, each individual church. Each member has differing gifts, which are supposed to, the difference is good. The differing gifts, the honorable and less honorable parts, all work together as one into the head who is Christ. Um, and so we, we, today we can, we can hardly accept that in the church. The women have to be men by preaching and teaching. And in the world we can't accept it. Where women have to be men by literally becoming physically men <laughs> as much as is possible. Uh, and, and every other form of, of, you know, dissolving the differences because they think that's victory. They think total equality, total sameness, absolute uniformativity um, is glory. That's ugly. It's like a lot of these houses in the suburbs where I live. They all look the same. It's disgusting. You know, now, and that's also what's funny, right? Is our culture wants to be unique and individual, but as I think it was Doug Wilson or someone was talking about, you know, they, everybody goes unique the same way with the same exact rebellious hairstyle or types of tattoos or placements on your body or piercings or whatever. It, it's, it's ridiculous. But that goes back to what? The other big point of Bavink, of the Trinity, of unity and diversity. We can't escape that because we're made in the image of God. So we're going to have diversity, but there's also going to be a unity. The question is, are we going to calibrate that according to the word of God or not? If we don't, we go into sin, chaos, and rebellion. We lose that harmony. It's discordant. If we follow God's word, it leads to greater harmony, greater unity within the diversity to God's glory and his real peace and joy and everlasting life of God. Bavink um, says, just as science extends the concepts implanted within human consciousness, just as technology strengthens the organs of the human body, so too society expands and develops the life of the family. The health of the family is a gauge, if not of society's material wealth, then certainly of its spiritual and moral well-being. And so he does still understand that the family is a bellwether of your country, your society. If it's poor in mass, then society is going to suffer. It could not be otherwise. If most ministers cannot raise their children well, have broken homes, then they're going to have broken churches. How much you want to bet a lot of ministers today didn't raise their children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and that's why our churches are broken. I'd be willing to bet a lot on that. I've heard it. I've heard it from conservative ministers that the seminaries have been to. Regretting how they raised their children. Some of the most stalwart, you know, Morton Smith, for example. It's not to disparage any one person. Um, but it is to say we got to do better. We got to do a lot better. The moral character of all labor and the necessary distinctions within society. For by nature, the man has a different disposition, different needs and inclinations, a different calling than the woman. No theory or law can erase this difference, which is grounded in creation. I cannot imagine that Bavink changes mind on us a year or two later. Whereas the wife finds her sphere of labor in the family, the man looks outward and there searches for an arena for his manpower. But in that connection, it is very important that he's bound to the family by means of moral bonds. 
For if he were separated from the family and placed by himself, he would run the risk of losing sight of the moral seriousness of life and of finding the purpose of his existence in selfish pleasure. The man who, as head of the family, enters his sphere of work in society and is bound by the bond of love to his wife and children, however, overcomes selfishness, living and working for others. The moral responsibility resting on his shoulders delivers him from many dangers. From the family, he derives the moral drive for work, and he returns to his family with the fruits of this labor. Both being at home and being away from home keep, keep each other in balance. In the man, the moral bond is laid down between family and society. His work ties together the natural bonds of the family with the voluntary bonds of civil society. So listen, if you, if you lighten the load of the burden of the man, if you take away his headship, you take away his head, you take away his purpose for living, and so he's going to then use it for wicked and debauched things. Don't cut off the head. Encourage the head. Help the head. That's what a woman's supposed to do, by the way, is to help me. When the men go bad, call them to repentance. Call them to be stronger. Don't try to supplant their authority. That's what Eve tried to do, honestly, right? In the garden, in some ways. So you got to understand that's where we're at as, as a society. And men have to understand that we do have a responsibility, and that's a good thing. And as Bavink says, when men believe they have responsibility and can take some pride in that and being the head of the home and can do it without fear of being shouted down by weak men and masculine women, then he's free to, to serve in the right sense of the word as the head of his home with confidence, with support. And when the wife understands that, that it is good to allow uh, the husband to have the burdens that God has called him to have, it's not really her allowing it, but submitting to it, submitting, literally submitting to his headship, to his authority, to his provision for you as the means God has provided for the woman. And as the woman is called to be helping the man as is fitting, then the women should be able to see that this frees them up for their calling too and enables the man to do better what he is called to do and it works for the mutual edification of one another and for society and for the whole world. But we don't want to go that way because we're, we think we know better. We think we know better. It's the original sin, right? We know better. We'll eat this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and go our own way. So a man has responsibility and a supportive wife at home wanting him to take on that responsibility it keeps him honest, it keeps him in check, it keeps him working hard. And he comes home and his wife is dutifully working at home and the labor's in the house. Everybody is happy. Except nobody's happy today because nobody b buys into this. Nobody believes this. Everybody's rebelling against it. Bavink says, yeah, on earth right now, work is paired with difficulty. It must be done in the sweat of one's brow. Not only by the manual laborer who works with his body, but the craftsman and the salesman, the teacher and the thinker who work especially with their mind. What a monotonous boredom characterizes many a job. What objections and difficulties must be conquered day after day. What patience and self-denial. What spiritual strength and effort are demanded to keep shouldering the burden, to avoid sticking one's hand in his pockets from discouragement. And above all, what a cheerfulness of spirit is needed in order to move forward joyfully and gratefully, as one should, to create delight and joy in one's work. This brings me to another point. Um... Sorry, I see my microphone is banging against my shirt, so this recording has probably been a little bit rough. Hope it's not ruined it. But um, 
you know, um, the lady who wrote, Rachel Hollis, I think, who wrote, um, yeah, Girl, Wash Your Face. <laughs> Never read it, just saw the title and laughed and said it's so stupid and it's another one from the the ground out from the mill of big evangelicalism to make lots of money off of with big fat smiles on their greedy faces her husband and she posted on instagram i'm sure and it's all the big articles right now oh we're getting it you know we're separated we're getting a divorce but we'll remain business partners and co-parent you know, I don't. Do I have to say anything more about that? The the wickedness of that. The it's a fake joy. It's not real. You don't smile through a divorce any more than you smile through the death of a loved one. You don't do it. It's fake. It's garbage. So what does it tell you about their books? You think it just came out of the blue? It's all fake. It's all a charade. It's all a show. But that's where we're at as a nation and in our churches. All right. Um, he says, uh, how many today complain as they work and view work merely as a means for earning money or simply as a means enabling them to enjoy life as much as possible later in the evening and at night on Sunday and holidays on the weekend, right? So this is a re regression to the position of Greek antiquity when work was viewed as a disgrace and a task for slaves. But Christianity has taught us differently. Christ himself has sanctified work by his life and suffering. He has made us understand that work is a moral calling, a calling that comes to us from God and that must be fulfilled for his sake. The purpose of work is inherent neither in work itself nor in pleasure nor in wealth. Those who desire... To be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 1 Timothy 6, 9. So work is good. It is um, sanctified by the blood of Christ who redeems the earth itself. Um, and all that is belongs to it and with it, including our labors, especially our labors to fill the earth and subdue it. Um, he says, every invention that man makes is a kind of emancipation. Steam and electricity shorten the distances and render people more and more independent of place and time, of wind and weather. But with this liberation from the power of nature, the social dependence of people has not decreased. We still need each other. But, you know, I mean, that's seen in, you know, what do we do? We get apart from each other of technology to get back together with one another with social media. Is, isn't that curious? <laughs> uh, we, we, we don't want people near, but we do want people near. And a lot of times we just want to project our own faces on screens. <laughs> in the patriarchal period, each family was, as it were, its own society. He talks about that again, making its own manpower, producing everything it needed for its own independence. In the course of time, this changed completely. Labor is now divided and distributed to an endless degree and has given rise to an incalculable number of independent enterprises. There are separate vocations for clothier and cobbler, carpenter and mason, baking and butchering, trading and selling, teaching and learning, practicing the sciences and the arts, and all these kinds of work have their own subspecialties and have given rise to a platoon of specialties and experts. Um, he says a number, an inestimable number of people in various parts of the world have been working to produce the food and drink we enjoy, 
the clothes we wear, the houses in which we live, the small and big things that supply our manifold needs. Remember, Bobby is saying this over 100 years ago. It could have been ripped out of uh, the newspaper this morning. And just think about how much more this is true today. So we, we've been in this um, era for a long, long time. To a stronger degree than ever before, people and nations have become socially and economically dependent on each other. A strategically organized strike can rob an entire world-class city in one instant of light and water and shut down all traffic into and out of the city. Incredible. This is how, at the present time, society has become a composite of the most manifold and complex relationships. Those relationships lose more and more of their personal, organic, moral character and shift toward mechanical, business, contra contractual networks. And that's where... Again, I don't think Bob Inc. all of a sudden after the war, war you know, had a, a change of heart on this and said, ah, oh, yes, separation from God and family. Let's just go whole hog with that. I highly doubt that. Maybe he said, look, this is the era that we're entering into and we need to realize that it's going to require us to um, engage in it in such a way where we can still have some degree of self-sufficiency and family and uh, close-knit bonds, communities, uh, which I would I think most people today, 100 years later, that are have their heads on straight here, we're, that's what we're saying. You know, we have electricity and Amazon packages coming to our door, but um, more and more, I think, are starting to, you know, value having some land and growing some crops and uh, building some things and making some things on your own, even if you didn't have to do it. My wife is crocheting right now and she doesn't have to but she enjoys it she makes gifts there's something personal about that she she gives these things that she makes as gifts to others um and when you lose all of that altogether, you lose a lot for the sake of expediency and affordability and and you know to be narrowly focused on your one or two selfish pleasures the industrial revolution however and then so Bavink comes out on the other side, so let's not exaggerate the issue here. He says, not one of the somber prophecies uttered by the leaders of socialism concerning the development of society has come to pass. The Industrial Revolution has been accompanied not by a decrease, but an increase in the number of businesses. The consolidation of business did not interfere with agriculture, nor gain the momentum in industry that socialism has predicted. Although in, in some branches of business, such as the mining industry, for example, large companies grew larger. In other areas, the average size in smaller companies not only survived, but even expanded. Manual labor came into its own again, and the number of jobs increased. Um, there's not been a consolidation of capital and land. Although there are a few immensely wealthy people, alongside large incomes, smaller and average incomes are growing as well. There's a general expansion of capital and prosperity. Right? Capitalism does have its abuses, but it does lift people out of poverty. Um, laborers are not unhappier than previously, but are advancing in terms of lifestyle, living standard, and development. Um, but Marxism is bad. It yields to revisionism and leads to evolution, so on and so forth. Right. Um, and this is maybe where you see Bob Inc. a bit being flexible he says the history of the last half century has brought to light so clearly that nothing is as dangerous as generalizing and lumping everything together 
So he's talking about like what, from 1870 to 1920 or so. There is not a single law that governs the entire development of society. There's not simply one theory that fits all the facts of reality. All events do not move along a single straight line. Just as in previous centuries, society, society exhibits the richest diversity, that diversity itself has increased to a large extent through the progress of science and technology, of agricultural industry, of trade and traffic. It is not the case that two classes stand in opposition against each other, the rich and the poor, entrepreneurs and employees, the rulers and the oppressed. Instead, life is infinitely varied. In every enterprise, there are large and small, strong and weak, between whom, again, there exists not a gap, but differences of degree. All those enterprises are not governed by one and the same protocol, but their operation depends on the country and people on entrepreneurial spirit and ability in order to grow in one direction or another. Modern society is no different in principle from previous ones and will not differ radically from the society of the future. He recognizes there's a continuum here. The expectation that sooner or later a society will arise in which all misery will disappear and everyone will be equal is an illusion. The distinctions between men and women, parents and children, government and citizens, employers and employees, rich and poor, healthy and sick, will always exist. There is no power in the world able to alter these natural ordinances. Again, I don't think he reneged on all this just a couple years later. He talks about abuses and the path toward improvement. He says, we are seeing a universal pursuit of equality, a yearning to eliminate all distinction based on birth or property and not on personal value, a strong push for independence and freedom, and church and state and family and society and vocation and business. Each person wants to see their own rights defined, wants to cast their own vote, and wants to stand up for their own interests. Um, so he's already recognizing, you know, you have to wrestle with, yeah, with these realities. Um, he says, in this pursuit, there is much that we can accept as required by the times in which we live. Much that we can appreciate as completely legitimate. In the name of Christianity, we cannot disapprove of much of this, for this religion, more than any other religion or ethics, has highlighted the value of the human personality. The human soul is more valuable than the whole world. But this pursuit may enjoy our sympathy and support and can work beneficially only to the degree that it is directed by religious moral principles and is guided by the law of God. So get that. There is elasticity, but it cannot abandon the law of God. The person who pursues simply and only, there's no, by the way, there's no elasticity in the law of God, but the law of God in its application will vary depending on a given society and culture and so on and so forth. You know, long hair in one culture for a woman may look like short hair for a woman in another culture, but um, you know, in one culture, it, it, you know, uh, short hair for a woman may be normal hair for a, a man or, you know, whatever. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily sinning. But if the, in, the, in one culture where the woman's hair is considered too short, um, she can't say, well, over in this other culture, it's not a big deal and just expect to rebel in her own culture. I mean, you know, it, it, there is change and variation I think Bobbing's bringing that out, but there's the underlying principles of the Word of God upholding it all. The person who pursues simply and only independence ends up glorifying the will to power, the right of the strongest. And because such anarchy cannot be tolerated, he is one day reined in by someone stronger or forcibly put in chains by society itself. Yep. Um, the individual in the community can live in peace, even as husband and wife, parents and children, government and citizens, employer and worker, 
only if they, they can live in peace only if a moral authority stands over them defining the rights and duties of both and guarding the interest of each so we have to rightly divide the word of truth god's word uh skipping down almost done before anything else a society is a complex composite of moral relationships it matters very little if these moral relationships are incorporated into the law as legal regulations occasionally codifying a right is proof that such moral relationships no longer possess adequate security in people's consciences, right? When you have to start codifying morality, it's an indication of an erosion of morality. It should be built in naturally as you love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But from their very origin, they rest in the spiritual moral nature of the human person and their ultimate firm footing lies there. A law that is not rooted in conscience is powerless. A people's economy is based on their ethics. That's why, you know, we the people have to be a uh, well-ordered people. We have to be a well-mannered people, a moral people for government to be able to govern effectively. And we're increasingly an immoral, wicked people. And that's why, in part, why government is in such shambles. And he says, therefore, bobbing in conclusion, we see once again the extraordinary significance that the family possesses for the moral well-being of society. For there in the family, from the moment we enter the world, we get to know all those relationships that we will enter later in society. Relationships of freedom and connectedness, independence and dependence, authority and obedience, equality and difference, right? Unity and diversity, the three in oneness, all that. And we get to know them in the family, not in an abstract academic way, not by theoretical instruction, but practically in and through life itself. All moral relationships are embedded and interwoven in the family, in the bonds of blood, and they are rooted in the origins of human existence. In the family, we get to know the secret of life, the secret, namely, that not selfishness, but self-denial and self-sacrifice, dedication and love constitute the rich content of human living. And from the family, we carry those moral relationships into society. One who has learned to honor his father later respects the authority of those through whom it has pleased God to rule over him. One who has truly loved his mother cannot violate another woman's honor. One who views the family servants as housemates cannot become a tyrant over his own employees. The family is the nursery of love and inoculates society with such love. We need that love if there's going to be any reform within society. Not selfishness, not greed, not thirst for domineering, but love is the foundation and the cement, cement of the Christian society. Christianity is not the architect, but the soul of society. It's an interesting um, comment that would be worth pondering on, but I'm running out of time, of course. Christianity is not the architect, but the soul of society. One who destroys the family is digging away the moral foundations on which society has been established as a moral institution. But one who exalts the family and outfits leadership with love rather than selfishness such a person does a work that pleases God, for God is love, and love is the law of his kingdom. Right, let's repeat that last one again. But one who exalts the family and outfits leadership with love rather than selfishness, such a person does a work that pleases God, for God is love, and love is the law of his kingdom. So lots to chew on in this. Lots to think about. I uh, hope you found it beneficial. And until next time, we'll have chapter 10, the last chapter, and I will try to include my wife on that, or we'll do a wrap-up and include her on that. Thanks, and God bless.